0: Welcome to Water for Fighting, where we discuss the past, present, and future of water in Florida with the people who make it happen. I'm your host, Brett Cyphers. This week's discussion is brought to you by my friends at Resource Environmental Solutions. Res is a national leader in ecological and hydrological restoration, offering nature-based solutions with guaranteed performance through innovative delivery options. Discover more about their work and commitment to Florida and its environmental challenges by visiting www.res.us. This episode is also brought to you by my friends at Collins Land Services. When it comes to your disaster recovery and land management needs, you're looking for the perfect combination of competence, reliability, and affordability. That means you're looking for Collins Land Services. Check them out at www.collinslandservices.com. All right, this should be a very interesting conversation for those of you who enjoy it like I do, digging into the history of some of Florida's most consequential environmental policies and programs. Today's guest is Ernie Barnett. Ernie is a veteran of both the Department of Natural Resources, now DEP, and the South Florida Water Management District, who's had a front row seat to the start of some of the most massive restoration efforts in history, like the Comprehensive Everglades Restoration Program, otherwise SERP, and the Northern Everglades Restoration. He left government service as the Assistant Executive Director for Everglades and Water Resources at the South Florida Water Management District. And since then, he's been the president of Water and Land Advisors Incorporated and the executive director of the Florida Land Council, where he represents the owners of over 3 million acres of land throughout the state. Ernie, thanks for sharing some time with you today. Glad to be here, Brett. All right, let's get straight to the beginning of Ernie Barnett, because there's got to be a story here. You're born on the campus of the University of the South, that's in Tennessee, right? Where both of your parents work, but your family left four months later to come to Florida. So the question right off the bat is, did they get kicked off of campus because you were crying with colic or something all the time?
1: (laughs) I wish it was that salacious. My
0: dad was a Air Force
1: drill sergeant at University of the South ROTC program. And Mm -hmm. it just, my births kind of corresponded with the end of his tour of duty there at the University of the South in Suwannee. I had the interesting good fortune of actually being born in the campus infirmary because my mom was the campus nurse (laughs) at the university, and her doctor said you could have your birth down in Winchester, Tennessee, or you can be up here on top of the mountain at Suwannee and have your birth here on the campus. And so I think in probably the history of that university, I might be one of a handful of people that were actually born in Suwannee, Tennessee.
0: Wow. But your parents, uh, you know, from North Carolina, right? Correct. And how did they meet? Did they meet at the university? No, my mother and
1: father grew up in Western Carolina, Mm -hmm. a little town. They were both living in a little town called Rutherfordton, North Carolina, which is a beautiful area. My dad always called it Ruffton, but it really wasn't all that rough. It was a quaint little town near Chimney Rock about 10 minutes outside of Chimney Rock, about 30 minutes to Asheville. And they met as young children and later in life married. And my dad was in the service and my mom followed him around the country. And I happened to be born on one of those
0: duty stations. Yeah. You have any siblings? Though?
1: You have an older sister and she was born at a different Air Force base in Victoria, Texas. <laughs> so uh, we we've moved around, but I was fortunate to end up in... Fort Wallen Beach. My dad was stationed at Eglin when I was four years old, mm. and I was at the very end of his military service, so he retired there, and I got the good fortune of growing up in the Florida Panhandle. Mm.
0: How many years was he in?
1: My dad was in 22 years. Okay.
0: Did your mom continue with nursing at that at that point? Did they both retire, or did they move on to something else?
1: Very proud of my dad. He didn't have a high school degree, So on the GI Bill, got his GED, then got an associate's degree at Okaloosa Walton Junior College, and then ultimately uh, went to the University of West Florida, got a degree in accounting, and became a CPA. So real proud of him, what he was able to accomplish. And my mom worked at the military hospital at Eglin Air Force Base, and very proud of her. She uh, ended up retiring with over 40 years of civil service as a military civilian service
0: nurse. Wow, that's really cool. Yeah, and so yeah, let's talk about that that growing up part when you know when you're there. You're in Fort Walton Beach where you grew up, and that's in Okaloosa County. Okaloosa County, for those of you who don't know, is in the Panhandle. Talk about life in Fort Walton in those days. What were you like as a kid? Well, it was
1: it was an idyllic childhood, to be honest. Surrounded by water, had to go over bridges to get to school. Had to go over a bridge to go shopping. There was water everywhere. One of the fun stories I like to recall is. I grew up across the street from a public beach called Gardner's Beach. And the house next door to the beach was actually owned by the people that owned the Gulfarium. So this was 1963 when we moved there. Uh lived there my whole life growing up. And the people that lived next door to the park, right on the water there, owned the Gulfarium and had saltwater tanks in their backyard. There was no marine mammal act, remember it was passed in 1972. Mm-hmm. So in the 60s if they needed another dolphin for their dolphin show, mm-hmm. they just went and netted them up one in the bay, threw it in their backyard saltwater tank and encouraged all the neighborhood kids to come swim with the dolphins to get them being used to being around people. Wow. Had a goofy golf course down the street, could ride my bike to, had white sandy beaches with turquoise water. Mm-hmm. So I kind of grew up thinking everybody had dolphins in their backyard, <laughs> goofy golf courses down the street and beautiful
0: beaches to play on. So it was it was a very idyllic childhood. Wow. Yeah, I used to have a... Uh, I used to, like, watch the old... that old TV show, Flipper, and I'm like, man, it would be awesome to, like, have a dolphin, uh, you know, as your best friend. And you actually had several dolphins, apparently. Yes. And we would uh, playfully call each other Bud and Sandy. Nice. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, you know, looking at your resume, hearing about the... Dol- things starting to make sense here with <laughs> Dolphins Next Door. It, it seems like you knew pretty early on what you wanted to do is that is that fair I mean it was it or was it more organic than that you know as a kid
1: no I think I wanted to always do something outside and early in college I was just drawn to the marine sciences biology I found that I did better in school when I studied subjects I had a passion about Mm. I was able to be a deckhand on a charter boat as a kid growing up and spent time in the Gulf of Mexico. And everywhere you look, there's water. And I think water was in my blood. Never
0: looked back. Was there anything that you thought of as an alternative to that? Or was it always, man, I, once you started thinking about it, was like, it's going to be something to do with, with the environment, with the water.
1: I was drawn to the medical field. I actually contemplated doing something physical therapy or nursing school, but probably because I admired my mom's role. But truth be known, back in the 70s, late 70s, when I was in college, there was only two PT schools in Florida, and they took a total of about 45 students. So it wow. was almost hard to get into. So I'm kind of glad I didn't go that route, because I've really, really looked back on my time and working in the environmental field and in the water uh, resource area, and I
0: wouldn't trade it for the world. Yeah, I mean you've dedicated, you know, decades to it. Mm-hmm. But let's let's talk about that, you know, kind of that that stepping from, you know, those choices that you're making, you know, going into, you know, into college and then beyond. You finish your undergrad and then your first graduate degree at the University of West Florida, right? Which is all, all obviously in the Panhandle, and we'll get to your second more problematic master's degree later on. Did you go straight to DEP after that, or was there something kind of in between that you were doing?
1: Yeah, it was actually DNR, and my last semester of grad school, I was feeling very responsible and needing to get a real job, and I scheduled a series of interviews, and ironically, I went to uh, West Palm Beach on a Wednesday and interviewed with the DEP district office in West Palm Beach, drove up to Titusville and interviewed with the DNR, uh, which was in the Marine Resources Division of Shellfish Management, and then I drove up to Palatka on my Friday and interviewed with the St. John's River Water Management District, drive back to Pensacola, and I guess I impressed the DNR folks the most because Monday morning they called and offered me the job. I was also, interestingly enough, a few days later, the uh, DER position in West Palm called looking for me to offer me that job. And so I was able to turn it down because I already had a job. But I was
0: two for three that week. But it sounds like DNR is probably the thing that you would yeah. probably had your, your heart set on anyway. T- talk about that, though, for a minute. For people who don't understand those two things, because now it's all DEP, right? The difference between DNR, was it as clear-cut as, as that? It's like one side does strictly the you know the ecosystem stuff, and the other side does the regulation. Is that... I would
1: say, like on a federal level, I would compare the old DNR was much more like the Department of Interior, mm. and the old DER was much more like EPA. So what we had at DNR were things like owning all the land, the tr- as, acting as staff to the trustees of the Internal Improvement Trust Fund who owned the land, state parks. The We had mine reclamation. We had beaches and shores. We had the Florida Marine Patrol. We had the Florida Marine Research Institute. So it was all the Mm -hmm. things that dealt more with resource management issues. D-E-E-R was much more of the regulatory program. Years later, I was in a senior management position at D-N-R when the two agencies were merged together. Mm -hmm. And that was a clash of cultures, but I think people today don't even know about it.
0: Right. Were you based out of, was it based out of somewhere in the the Panhandle when you started at DNR or was it in Tallahassee?
1: No, my first job with DNR was in Titusville. Oh, okay. And That's I worked, right. I, I managed the shellfish resources from Nassau County all the way down to where I live today in hmm. Stewart, Florida. And then I had a, a stint as an aquatic preserve manager at Rookery Bay in Naples, Florida, still with DNR. And then about 1989, I knew if I was really going to Make a long term career of this and wanted to influence policy and make a difference in the environmental and natural resource field, I needed to get to Tallahassee. So in 1989, I uh, got promoted into a position in the main office in the Division of Marine Resources, and shortly thereafter, got promoted up into the executive office. So from September of 1989 till I left to go to the Water Management District in 2000, the end of 2004, I had spent 15 years on the executive team at DNR and then ultimately DEP after the merger.
0: Yeah. What's it, what's it like for those out there? Cause it doesn't happen so much anymore, right? Where someone starts and you started as I think it was an environmental specialist one or, Correct. and you end up at very senior level at DEP, you know, when you left to go to the district, what's it like moving through the ranks? Cause you held probably what, six, seven, eight positions, yeah. you know, in total, does that did that happen a lot in those days? I mean, it seems like it's uncommon to to rise that that much, you know, in you know, in one of these agencies.
1: Yeah, I think it may be more common in the specialized agencies like a DEP or a water management district where people are drawn to that as a long term career. Mm-hmm. Like you and I share the passion for water, so we were able to kind of stick around a while because we loved what we were doing. I don't know if it happens in other agencies where it's you're more generalist, mm-hmm. but I, I think I, I sensed a lot of times there were opportunities to go into the private sector, but I truly, really loved what I was doing so much. I couldn't ever imagine doing anything else.
0: Yeah. And that's something conversations that I've had over the years with other folks that were, I'm going to use my quote fingers here, lifer you know, in whether it be a water management district or DEP and, you, you talk to them, and you can talk to engineers, PhDs, and, and I asked one the question one time, like, why are you here? And their response was, because I love it. I mean, I love this, and I've done the other. You know, you can go out to the private sector and make, you know, many, many times, you know, what you could, you know, work in government. It's like, but they just love it. And and it seems like that, had, I mean, it had to be the case with you, right? I mean, you obviously could have, you know, moved on at different points.
1: Yeah, I think so, and I also felt very blessed to be surrounded by people I love to work with mm. and work for. And one of the things those of you listening that aren't intimately involved in the bureaucracy of government and government employment, there's different levels, and when you get into the very highest level, the senior management level, you truly serve at the pleasure of the governor or the secretary who you work for. And so one of the things that was a bit strenuous and tenuous of of my twenty of my 30 years, 24 were senior management. Mm-hmm. What that means is every election <laughs> I had to resign <laughs> and hope they would rehire me. And fortunately for me, I survived about six transitions. Mm-hmm. And I think the most frustrating one was I had really dedicated, proven myself to the Jeb Bush administration that, look, I'm here for the, to be a good servant and serve whatever your policies you want to implement. Mm-hmm. Having, having spent eight years under Governor Lawton Childs a different party, and between the first and second term of of uh, Governor Bush's office, he asked all of us to resign, and so we did. And fortunately, he kept all of us. But that exercise of uh, going through that was a bit
0: nerve wracking. I, yeah. I always gave myself this is a two year at a time life that we live. Yeah, and to get lucky enough to stick around like at the I think the Northwest Florida Water Management District was the longest I'd yeah. been anywhere by far. You know, at at ten years. And for a lot of people, you know, they you know work someplace 20, 30, 40 years and thinking nothing of it, but that's just simply not not the life that that we have.
1: Yeah, I got really good at writing resignation letters that kind of <laughs> said, "I'm resigning, but not really."
0: You just change the date on it <laughs> yeah. and say, so like, <laughs> "Yeah." So, I mean, let, I mean, let's talk about the some of that consequential work at at DNR slash DEP, and that includes the very beginning of SERP, right? Oh,
1: way before that, we worked on the original lawsuit mm-hmm. where the United States government, 1988, the federal government sued the state of Florida for water quality issues. So, uh, my role at DNR was the in the in the executive office, and the they kind of tagged me with heading up the swim program and all of the things that were going to be implemented as part of the settlement agreement. Our issue was a little different than DER; they were involved in the they were actually a you know a defendant in the case. Mm-hmm. They were wanting to use our land, the trustees' land, to build stormwater treatment areas, so we were trying to guide them away from using public lands to solve this problem. So was involved in that after the merger. I kind of got tagged as the staff to the secretary who dealt with all these high-level litigation issues and the ultimate settlement and then implementing the Everglades Forever Act. Uh, so from the early 90s until I left there, I sort of dealt with those lawsuit issues, and in, in the middle of all that, the same very same people who had sued the state of Florida asked us to become partners in Everglades Restoration and was able, through the 90s, to develop the Comprehensive Everglades Restoration Plan all the way through to getting it authorized and approved in
0: Congress in uh, the year 2000. Let's take a minute to talk about my friends at Resource Environmental Solutions. Our state presents unique challenges with its diverse ecosystems, landscapes, and the many demands on its natural resources. That's why RES uses an innovative approach and creative solutions to help municipalities, agencies, and local water resource groups navigate the ever-changing landscape of environmental regulations in Florida and throughout the country. RES actively restores habitats, hydrological regimes, and ecosystem functions across Florida, from the Panhandle to the Heartland, to the Florida Keys and everywhere in between, They focus on restoring floodplains and wetlands and improving water quality, which benefits a wide array of species that call Florida home. With an unwavering commitment to Florida's unique ecological communities, RES upholds long-term stewardship practices, guaranteeing sustainable outcomes that endure. Discover more about their work and commitment to Florida's communities and the environmental challenges they face by visiting www.res.us. All right, now back to the conversation. And so leaving all, all of that behind, I mean I always think of it in terms of your work you get, you get to work on something for such a long time and then at the, at some point you you let go to to move on to the next thing. When did that happen for you? Was it a policy? Was it being interested in in policy and being able to to effectuate that? When you it's not like you went to the moon, you went from DEP to the South Florida Water Management District, and I assumed that part of that was they had that they had their eye on you because you understood those ecosystems down there.
1: Yeah, but it was a, it was actually kind of a logical next progression in my career. But you know, while I was at DEP, I had the good fortune of working on things from Pensacola to Key West. I actually in in your old role as the executive director of Northwest Florida, while I was at DEP for several years, I was the lead DEP person on the Apalachicola chattahoochee flint Water Wars. So I got to work on interstate issues and North Florida issues and South Florida issues. So that was very satisfying. But truth be told, a large part of my time and effort and energy, because the issues were so daunting, were in South Florida. So having spent a lot of time working on Everglades, heading up the state's participation in these large restoration projects down there. When Henry Dean, who's done this podcast with you, uh, decided to retire as the executive director, uh, the secretary of DEP approached me and said, Would you like to be the executive director at South Florida? And I was shocked, but thought about it for a day or two and said, Yeah, I'll throw my name and my hat in the ring, but under one condition that I'm not competing with anyone, that if I stand on my own merits, but I want to support the other applicants. Mm. And because of the way there was no cutthroat sort of Sort of attitude between the final three. I made it all the way to being interviewed by the governor and made that final cut of three people. I think we all kind of earned each other's respect. And I wasn't chosen. Always the bridesmaid, never the bride. (laughs) (laughs) But Carol Weely, who was selected the executive director, and I had had. She saw that kind of person I was. Knew I knew the issues, and she actually then recruited me to be part of her senior management team down there and I was honored to do that and enjoyed my my last 10 years in government working even more focused on the issues that I had probably spent the last 15 years working on already.
0: Yeah, I'll, I'll talk about that in a, in a bit. Let me ask you first, who was the third person? I uh, knew that was you and, and Carol. Uh,
1: Chip Merriam who was the uh, okay, who was yeah. the assistant executive director and Chip has since retired and ended up at Orlando Utility Authority. So Chip's a great guy and it was the the three of us and we all ended up all three working together. Uh, so it, it ended up being a
0: happy ending for everybody. Speaking of the opposite of happy endings, you know, in a way rewind back for a second It's like you brought it up and I was going to, I was going to yeah. leave it alone and people know I'll get upset about it or annoyed about it. But talk about the, the early days. Cause this is probably late eighties, I think really right. When those discussions really began arguments began in, in earnest talk about your role on you know, on dealing with ACF and for us you know obviously the Appalachia-Cola River and 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 Bay were the places that were being impacted the most
1: it was it was an interesting learning experience for me because we had three states and two of the states were usually pretty closely aligned uh, and that was Florida and Alabama and i think one of the things i can proudly say and i know it carried on in your tenure is Florida's interest in all this was extremely resource-driven. There was demonstrated harm to Apalachicola Bay, the loss of freshwater flows, the loss of water into the floodplains, well-documented. And, you know, the Army Corps seemed to let public drinking water supply, you know, be a driving factor in their decisions, which I think is ironic because we're not seeing the same focus on water supply from Lake Okeechobee for the, uh, all the utilities that depend on it down there. But that's another story. Yeah, it was interesting. I think the part of this was the combination of having to have really good science, which I think we invested a lot of money as a state to develop that science. Mm-hmm. And that was part of the role that I played in. But then the interactions with the attorneys, and there were some very good interstate water attorneys from Nebraska and other places that we brought in to uh, to help guide our interstate water issues. I don't know how I feel about it at the end of the day, how it all ended, but I do think that Florida
0: put forth its best effort. Do you think there's a, a future for Apalachicola Bay?
1: I have a lot of confidence in the folks at FWC, have a lot of confidence in the resiliency of the men and women in Apalachicola who've generations have relied on that bay for shellfish harvesting, whether it be oysters or, you know, shrimp or whatever. You know, they're they're resilient people, so I have a lot of confidence in them. I I think there's some structural changes that have happened to the river all the way up to Atlanta and beyond that make it difficult. You know, these series of dams, not only have they disrupted flows, but below each dam they've scoured deeper channels. So it takes more water to get into the floodplain, more mm-hmm. water to get down to the river. So it's not even getting back to the flows that used to be. If you wanted to have a, a pre-dam sort of ecosystem in, in Apalachicola Bay, I think's it's a, a, a difficult, difficult proposition but, you know, ecosystems adjust and adapt. People adjust and adapt. I think I think the Northwest Florida Water Management District, I think the legislature's provided funding, and I think the work that's been done to acquire lands in the floodplain uh, is remarkable. Uh, and for a water management district with such limited resources, when I look at what they've done in all the watersheds mm-hmm. that they deal with, they've done a remarkable job of protecting the floodplains. And, and so I have hope. I'm, I'm hopeful.
0: I'll take it. All right, let's let's get back to South Florida Water yeah. Management District. So Carol's the the new ED. She brings you in. What was to be your role heading into the the district? So
1: I pretty much headed up all of their I was sort of the link between the agency and all of the uh, intergovernmental programs whether it was in Washington DC, Tallahassee, all of the service centers. Really enjoyed that role cuz it was a lot of Of being able to translate science data policy at the agency level to local governments, individual citizens, all the way up to Congress uh, in the state legislature. So, a lot of honed a lot of skills in a hurry of having to translate. You know, be a good subject matter expert at the same time communicating those. You know, public policy issues that we could get the right policies and. Funding and legislation in place.
0: Yeah, it's funny you say that. I was going to ask you, like where did you find the the skill set, the change in skill set that that's required to to do that kind of work? Because it's not typical. It's not unheard of, but it's not typical for folks that are really science driven to be able to step outside themselves a little bit into the into someone else's ears.
1: Yeah, I've got to give a lot of credit to the uh, the skills I developed at DEP and DNR. I was the subject matter technical person. It, it came up through the ranks as a field biologist. Mm-hmm. But in early on, I caught the eye of Virginia Weather, who became the the secretary, ultimately, and her deputy, Don Duden. Most people probably remember Senator Dana Young. Her father was my mentor. And when there was some complicated issue, like the Valdez oil spill, and we needed to develop oil spill Natural Resource Damage Assessment schedule. They would task me to do that, and then I got the good fortune of being able to. They would drag me downtown to explain it to the legislature why we needed to change the law. So that mm. that translating complex issues into, you know, into sort of plain speak where uh, elected officials can really grasp the magnitude and importance of an issue was is something I think I learned on on the job.
0: I'm going to ask you this because not many people have done it. You spent enough time at DP and a water management district to give, I would call it an educated accounting of the difference between working at the two. And I know the roles are a little bit different, you know, at DEP than, than where you ended up or where you started and even ended up at the district. But when I went between the governor's office or DEP and a water management district, it happened twice. I always imagined at first that it was going to be limiting, but I ended up enjoying the immersion you know into that region the first it was back it was back where I grew up, which was you know swift mud Southwest Florida water management district, but eventually you know my real home you know which was northwest i I just loved it I mean I loved how huge you could make you know your world even though it was a smaller place What's your take on the difference for you between? The two.
1: I never felt like it was going to be limiting because I was working on, you know, what I you know, big audacious issues. Right. <laughs> and and some of it was a continuation of the work that had already been done. The thing I find which might be a little bit of a different perspective was the very different cultures. Mm. So I find those who come up through the ranks of a state agency, you actually are, I think, more plugged into the governance of the state. You, you get your direction from the governor's administration and the policies they want to implement. The legislature provides additional guidance for policy and implementation and provides you the funding and the resources to do it, and you go forth and do it. The water management districts back then had much more of an autonomous culture where they had a governor-appointed board. They didn't see the direct connection to the legislature that a state agency might and also had a different kind of view of their place in the world. So, and that's good and bad, but I, I think the, the cultures have changed over time. There's much more involvement by the executive the branch now in the water management district's implementation of policies. But that culture change was a bit a bigger shock to me than the limiting of the scope and the work. Because I, I actually uh, was able to really focus on my passion, which mm-hmm. is water. And, and I felt like I could do that in South Florida or North Florida or anywhere but as long as I was working on water.
0: I think I I think I only meant that in the terms of you become even though I know that you did a lot of the Everglades stuff is for me it's like you almost become a generalist from from the chairs that yeah. that I was in and so I'm caring about you know the Perdido River and the Everglades yeah. and the St. Johns River and the Apalachicola and so it's like some of those things that you have to to leave behind and I, I, the curiosity is like is there some you know the twinge of regret that, that you don't get to, to work on say the, the ACF, you know, case anymore.
1: Yeah, I think I think you always want to if there's a particular water body or part of the state that you're passionate about having to realize that I'll have no role in that is is something that's a, it's a trade-off that you make, but I think to be able to really make a difference in in one area and uh, affect water management decisions from you know, whether you're dealing with flood control or water supply or ecosystem restoration or, or how you're going to you know, regulate wetland permitting, all of those things that you're really focusing on sort of your backyard, Mm. I think is, has got some degree of satisfaction as well. And then, and then if you really do a good job and come up with something innovative, you can actually create something Mm. that can be transferable to the other districts. And we've seen things that they've done at say Swift Mud that were really cutting edge on their farms program. Yeah. And then some of the other districts have kind of adopted some of those things. And I think at South Florida, we did the dispersed water management where we Mm. partnered with private landowners to help store water. And so you can have a Bigger influence outside of your scope by doing something really, really well. But I, I, I did feel a little bit of that, and I, I'll be honest, I, you know, after about five or six years down there, I was, you know, I, I, I would have been interested in another part of the state and mm-hmm. do the same thing there. <laughs> but um, I'm happy. I, am happy my career ended the way it did, and in, in government because I loved my 20 years at DEP and my 10 years at the Water Management District. Wouldn't have traded either of them for the world.
0: Let's take a quick break to talk about my friends at Collins Land Services. When I was at the Northwest Florida Water Management District in the wake of Hurricane Michael, the devastation of tens of thousands of acres of property the agency manages in the path of that storm was beyond belief. But thanks to the governor and legislature, our dedicated and professional staff, and our equally dedicated partners like Collins Land Services, we were able to begin the long, hard road to recovery. Collins Land Services made the forestry recovery process easier because they embraced the three legs of the stool one must possess to work effectively with me. Competency, reliability, and affordability. Collins is an American-owned and veteran-operated business that has a long resume of successful projects throughout Florida that go well beyond ordinary forestry services. Their experience experienced with stormwater and other surface water maintenance. Right-of-way services of all kinds. And they've proven their value with commercial and even residential clients as well. Get rid of the absentee contractors, cost overruns, and substandard performances. Contact Collins Land Services to find out how they can help solve your property challenges today. You can find them at www.collinslandservices.com. All right, let's get back to the conversation. Let's talk about that that culture. I mean, it's it's safer you and I talk about, yeah. about these things because you've got, you know, and I did the same thing I, and, and folks will have heard by now the episode with Pepper Uccino, who, you know, being a, a Senate staffer and the, the differences in how you navigate that. Talk about that culture that you spoke of earlier in terms of what are what are the benefits, and what are some of the what's some of the bad as well?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the benefits is you engender and probably from the very top to the bottom of an agency this sense of pride in what you're doing. Uh, I remember at South Florida they had a slogan It was something like "We do the best work on the planet." You know, have a funny little nuance to it, but that's how they felt. They felt like what they did was they were the best at it, and, and they were great at it. There's no doubt. But I also was probably had a slightly different perspective because I knew the men and women I worked alongside at DEP were doing the same kind of great work in Pensacola. <laughs> right. So I wasn't, as shelter's not the right word, I wasn't in the same bubble they were in. Right. I also knew that there were men and women working for Children and Family Services, making sure that kids were safe yeah. and maybe making less money than we were making, but it didn't make their job any less important. And so that was sort of the culture thing that I thought was a bit of a negative. But I think the fact that people were passionate about what they did, they threw their lives into it. And I tell this story often. Uh, back, I'm I'm so old, there weren't personal computers <laughs> when I first started working. We didn't even have cell phones. We, we had... Uh, we didn't even have beepers if we were in the field. So I got my first beeper in the mid 80s. If somebody needed to find me out in the field, they'd beep me and I'd have to find a payphone. So I've seen the whole arc of resources. Well, there was a period of time where if you wanted to do some work and there was no work from home, you had to go into the office, sit down at your desktop computer and type up a memo or do some analysis or run mm-hmm. a spreadsheet. You didn't do that remotely from home back in the late 80s, early 90s. So I will tell you, I can't tell you how many times I rolled up on the Douglas building in Tallahassee on a Saturday mm. and the parking lot was half full. Wow. And I couldn't tell you how many times at nine or 10 o'clock at night I would walk out of the Douglas building and the people were still in there working. And so this passion by government employees to work hard was probably more easy to see because I think those people are still pouring that same passion into their jobs. They're just not... Having to go into the office, right? And 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 the thing I noticed when I went down to the water management district, the same passion was there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think I think uh, it's probably more a product of the issues we work on, uh, and I think there's a people really, really that get into natural resource management or environmental protection or water resource management are in that because they really want to do it and
0: care about it. Do you think the culture thing also maybe has something to do with geography? I always had like this theory that it wasn't just, you know, physical geographical separation, but that there was almost kind of a psychological distance that comes, you know, with the physical distance. Is that a fair assessment? You mean the distance from the capital or uh, the, the distance the, Oh yes. Yeah. I mean the distance from, you know, in the end we we all pretend that we you know we have other bosses but in the end we know that who decides, you know, whether the executive director gets to keep his job yeah. and and who gets to be the board, you know, these water management districts. In in terms of where your brain is. I don't mean that somehow you care about something else other than other than water or or your job or you know are complying with the law. It's more of the idea of of being more in tune with, say, the, the policy wavelength out of the Capitol.
1: Yeah i i would I would say my time in the secretary's office at D E P it was I viewed that probably more it was more intense and maybe my situation was a little unique because I did spend fifteen years in the you know right. as, in the executive office. But I, the analogy I used to always use it was a lot like being at a rock concert, and I got to be in the front row, <laughs> and that sounds really exciting. But the, the, the noise is pretty distorted. The speakers are, are really loud. And there's all these people behind you trying to get up to the front row. And they're pushing on you. And you're yeah. getting squeezed. And you can see that the lead singer's mascara is running. And he's a little older than you thought he was. <laughs> if you just could get about 15 rows back. And, and the music would be, the fidelity of the music would be so much better. And the visual optics would be so much mm. better. And people weren't pushing on you as much. That's my analogy between being in Tallahassee versus being out in the field. Out in the field, you really have a better view and things are much better to understand and more clear because you have so much less noise.
0: How did you cope with that? So, navigating a process, it's not your it's not your education, it's not your training, it's not your instinct and now you are dealing with any number of bosses you've got. In this case, you've got Carol, you have nine board members. You have any number of people who imagine themselves or actually are your boss in, you know, in Tallahassee, there's the governor and then all the people that, that, you know, work for him, there's the legislature. How do you navigate that and still try to be a good advocate for the place you're from Given with all those givens, you know, in place?
1: Yeah, I I used to tell board members this, I, I think at the end of the day, when you're tour is over, whether it's your tour as a board member or your tour as a leader of an agency, whatever that tour is, at the end of the day, you're going to think about all of the things you accomplished. You're going to think about the things you wished you had accomplished. But what you're really going to remember is the relationships, Mm. the friends you made, the trust you earned, the people that know I want to be in the bunker with that guy because his knees aren't going to buckle. And so I always felt like I needed to be that guy. And I always wanted to be honest, trustworthy, and I always wanted to do what was best for the resource, what was best for the agency, and was was best for the people I worked for. And I think if you're selfless like that, it comes back in spades, mm-hmm. the rewards you get. I have lifelong friends that uh, I would never have met if I didn't work at DNR or DEP or the Water Management District. And I think I have, pretty confident, I have more friends than I can count on my hands. That if I had to call them in the middle of the night, broke down on the side of the road, they'd come get me, <laughs> and they know I'll come get them. So I think that's how it's just being
0: genuine and trustworthy and caring about what you do. Let's let's talk about you mentioned it. The caring about the resource, and I, I, in my mind, it's like there's no there's no doubt that you know these folks are are dedicated. I was one of those folks yeah. for twenty years to these issues. But let's talk about let's talk about water quality in Southeast Florida. It, you're you know you're at the water management district. You did a DNR and DEP before. You have a very strong grasp of the things that, as you said, predate even SERP mm-hmm. and Northern Everglades, you know, et cetera. Talk about when you look at water quality. There there are boogeymen, and then there in my mind those things existed for myself talk about the the misimpressions where the science was where the science evolved to our understanding to where we are now because i'm not you know i'm not here to cheerlead for agriculture it's like but the idea that we've blamed one particular type of one activity on all the problems you know, in the Atlantic Ocean, probably beyond. It's like, it's not as cut and dried as that, is it? No, not at all. And, and I, I,
1: I kind of reflect back on how, where I am now is, is a large part due to the 30 years I did in government and all of the different stakeholders and, and uh, industries and advocates that I dealt with when I, when I left government, I felt like I could probably continue. I was still relatively young in my early 50s, I felt like I could still had another 15, 20 years left in me. And I really wanted to work for the landowners Hmm. because one, they care about their land. They're excellent stewards. Most of the folks I work with are multi-generational Floridians who want to leave their land in better shape than they got it from their parents and want to leave it to their kids in good shape. So they know where every drop of water flows and they really care about it. And the last thing they want to do is pollute a water body. So they come from a place, I need to make money, but I'm going to do it the right way. And so they earn my respect and I want to, I, and I'm glad that I work for agriculture. The other thing that I'll, I'll tell you is you have to blame somebody for something. And if you're, you know, if you're just, you can't, you can't, some people can't scale up the fact that their house is on a septic tank. Well, it's just one little septic tank. It's not mm-hmm. causing a problem. But if you're in a community that has 40,000 septic tanks, that all have are in very transmissive groundwater areas, where there's science and data that shows that that makes it into the water body, well, then I probably shouldn't be on a septic tank anymore, and neither should all of my neighbors, and the other 39,999 people shouldn't. But that costs money, and it's going to be a hardship. So it's easier to just blame somebody else. And I think that's what's happened a lot to agriculture. Mm. uh, Because in my lifetime, which I'm 64 years old, been in Florida 60 years, In my 60 years, the state has quadrupled in population. Agriculture 60 years ago was not very precise. They've sidecast fertilizer, irrigated whenever they wanted. You know, they probably had a lot more runoff and more nutrients entering waterways than they do today. Well, guess what? We didn't have a whole lot of algal blooms. Over my lifetime, the population has grown. Development has sprawled. Those miles and miles of citrus fields you used to see down Highway 27 is now the village's. And there's houses, red-top roofs, instead of orange groves. Yet ag has gotten smaller, much more sophisticated, much more highly regulated, very precise in the amount of fertilizer they put out, very precise in how they irrigate, very precise in how they manage their stormwater, yet water quality has really degraded. And so much of the state's process determines who's responsible based solely on land use. So if people tell you that in the Suwannee River Basin, you know, 80% of the nutrients are coming from agriculture, it's because 90% of the basin is agriculture. Right. Just imagine what if that watershed was highly developed. It would be an order of magnitude worse. And so when you, when you, fertilizer a lot like gasoline that you've asked the state of Florida where the most gas is sold and used, people would say Miami-Dade County, there's the most cars there. Well, when you ask where's the most fertilizer, it's gonna be in the ag and rural communities. But with the gasoline analogy, nobody's going the step further to say, are you putting that gas in a Hummer or a hybrid? And what I'm telling you is I think farmers are now putting their fertilizer in a hybrid. It's much more effectively used, minimally applied. And bottom line, it costs money. So the less they use, the better. Yet somehow uh, it's able to just to blame them for everything is an easy way out. And all the while, a lot of the research, particularly in the coastal estuary, show that a significant portion of the the nutrients that are causing really harmful algal blooms are coming from organic sources, not inorganic fertilizer. Things like from the intestines of warm-blooded mammals, like <laughs> things that are flowing through septic systems. And those, those are things that I think once you drill into the science, the data, you look at the frequency of the nutrients yeah. coming into the system, you'll see that it's, everybody's got to do their part. And if all we do is blame one sector, sometimes the real problems get overlooked and not addressed.
0: And, and you're you're speaking of the work out of FAU with Brian the on some of the on some of that work. He and some some other academics that have worked on, on the you know those. And I've read some of it you know myself, yeah. and some of it's been you know quite recent vintage in terms of changing even the way I thought about you know the concentrations of the nutrients that are making their way, whether it be in River Lagoon or, or the St. Lucie estuary. Correct.
1: And also the Caloosahatchee. There's a recent study in the Caloosahatchee that shows the predominant source of nitrogen in the water bodies is from local failing septic tanks and domestic waste systems. You know, you can spe- speciate, that's a mm-hmm. big word, you can speciate the different types and forms of nitrogen and you can tell whether it's organic or inorganic. You can tell if it's from a human source or from a, our, our anthropogenic source brought in and or wildlife, and, and and what we're finding is a lot of those instances are, you know, there's a lot more coming from local sources than one would, would think. Another key thing about Lake Okeechobee, you've done a lot of analysis of Lake Okeechobee, and here's a statistic that I think would just floor people, is 90% of the nutrients that go into Lake Okeechobee occur in the top 10% flow events. Hmm. So when there's super high flow coming through canals and off of lands, these are things like slow-moving tropical storms, extraordinary rainfall events. You get three or four inches of rain in a 24-hour period, which does happen. Those are the events when all the nutrients are coming into the system. The other way of looking at it is 90% of the time, everything's working. Septic tanks are working. BMPs on farms are working. Stormwater ponds and neighborhoods are working. But in those 10% high-flow events, all this chaos is happening on the landscape. Nothing's working. Nothing's working. So, so I don't think it's fair to say it's agriculture's fault when we know septic systems are being bypassed, sanitary sewer collection systems are overflowing, all of these nutrients are coming in. And I really think we have in some places in Florida, Indian River Lagoons a great example, Lake Okeechobee's another, we have much more of a hydrology problem than we do a source control problem. Mm-hmm. And if we just simply made the investments to capture, store, and treat those storm events... I think we would see a lot more better health coming in our estuaries and that's what I got to really compliment the Florida Legislature DEP you see this broader focus in recent years of investing more in storage investing more in septic to sewer investing more in the revolving loan program for wastewater treatment plants you see the agencies responding to that that we know it's all of these things need to be addressed and that's where I think we'll ultimately achieve our water quality goals. Yeah,
0: let's take, if you don't mind, let's take a few of them, like kind of one thing at a time. And, and so looking at the, the inputs into Lake Okeechobee, which then make their way both east and west, is like I think a lot of people get the geography of, you know, of surficial inputs into the lake wrong. In terms of you have the north end, and I don't want to do this, you know, north side of the lake, south side of the lake, you know, argument, but it's more of the, the physics of it is water is moving south regardless. And some of the things that people have you know have placed the, the blame on these impacts are in a place where that that's physically impossible. Is that, am I, am I? Water flows downhill and
1: the Kissimmee River basin all the way up to Orlando, uh ironically Disney's the headwaters of the mm. Everglades, Shingle Creek, Reedy Creek. They all flow into the Kissimmee Chain of Lakes. The water makes its way down, flows into Lake Okeechobee, and water doesn't flow back uphill. There are some very rare instances, and all of the water in the farmlands to the south flow into the Everglades through a series of stormwater treatment areas, and that's a resounding success story. We've seen over a 95% reduction pre-versus post of nutrients flowing into the Everglades since the Everglades Forever Act has been implemented, and that's been a series of best management practices with the farmers and the water management district building over 60,000 acres of highly engineered filter marshes to treat the water before it goes into the Everglades. What we've not done is focused on the water coming in from the north. And that's where I think we're seeing some efforts now. The water management district appropriately, the South Florida water management district's appropriately focusing on building storage north of the lake, partnering with private landowners to hold water, building stormwater treatment areas, and, you know, I'm an analogy guy, <laughs> so instead of talking about hybrids, I'll talk about leaking roofs. Mm-hmm. You know, when it's raining, you know, you don't open the door to make sure the water can flow out of your house. You patch the hole in the roof. Right. And so if you really want to solve the water quality problems in the Everglades and Lake Okeechobee, you focus on keep capturing, storing, and treating that water either through highly innovative technologies like aquifer storage and recovery underground or above-ground impoundments like they're uh, investigating right now right. through what they call low-car. But capture that water before it gets into the lake so you don't have a crisis that you have to deal with when the lake rises too fast and they dump the water on the estuaries and cause significant harm. So I'm, I'm i am I'm hopeful. I've seen that over time. Opinions have changed, yeah. understandings have changed, and people are sort of coming to the realization that we've we've spent a lot of time south of the lake, cleaning up the water, and we've done a great job. It's nice to see the focus and effort now move north of the lake.
0: Let's talk for a second about farming itself. You know, it, just in that respect, and you mentioned earlier the innovative things that people are doing, Swift Mud being obviously the shining example of where where a lot of that started with their, their farms program. I literally stole a huge amount, you know, components of that program in northwest Florida. Other folks have done, you know, similar things. Talk about what that looks like in South Florida cuz I'm not as familiar with with the things going on there in terms of those BMPs. So the the
1: the landowners who are south of the lake and in in were, were subject to implementing the Everglades Forever Act have their own special regulatory program. That regulatory program requires them to do a suite of best management practices where they retain the they do water management, sediment control, they they'll vegetate their banks of their you know canals do do sediment removal out of ditches laser level their fields. You say why would you laser level your field if your field is tabletop flat? And they do with lasers they they they'll uh, get it tabletop flat when it light and moderate rainfall doesn't run off. It percolates into the soil and doesn't have nutrients leaving the site. So there's all these sophisticated things that the farmers do with cost. They test the tissue of the plant to know what nutrients it needs. They test the soil to see how many nutrients are in it. And they only add that delta between what's already in the soil and what the plant needs to actually grow. They have almost a one-to-one balance of fertilization to plant growth, fertilizing only in the root zone. They, they just do so many things that are so sophisticated. Uh, they have stormwater collection. They'll reroute water into fallow fields so there's no outflow. The result of all those things is we had a 10-year baseline from 1978 to 1988. And so we know what the baseline was before there were any regulations. And every year we compare back, just for rainfall, we compare back how much nutrients are coming off those fields today. And it has averaged for over, gosh, almost 30 years now, 58% reduction, pre versus post. What that means is, Thousands of metric tons of phosphorus have been intercepted through these BMPs and not made it into the Everglades. When you combine that with these large filter marshes, it gets it down to a very low, uh, down in the teens, parts per billion phosphorus, which is as clean as rainwater. Hmm. Outside of Lake Okeechobee, the Department of Agriculture Consumer Services has an almost identical regulatory program. They require the same types of BMPs. They're not voluntary compared to what anybody tells you. It's these if you're in an impaired water body with an adopted basin management action plan, you either implement BMPs or you have to do rigorous testing to show you're not causing any problems. And it's just easier for most people to go ahead and implement. But same type of program with FDAX, the staff down there have done a great job. They are also doing great work reducing the nutrient flows. As far as a farms-type program, uh, that's, the bulk of that is done by FDACs in South Florida. They get an extra amount of money to do cooperative funding with landowners to go above and beyond their BMPs. If they want to build a stormwater pond in addition to their BMPs, they can get state funding. And then the South Florida Water Management District has a very unique program called Dispersed Water Management where they actually pay landowners to farm mm-hmm. water. So, if certain times of the year during the wet season, they can uh, put boards in their property, not drain it, let it backflow, and hold water, they get paid on a per acre foot basis annually to increase storage in the area. So I think we're we're heading in the right direction on many of those things. Swanee Rivers has a great mm-hmm. they've really focused on cooperative funding, working with landowners, as has St. John's and Northwest. So I think all five water management districts to some degree are all doing great work with with landowners. Let's
0: move to the to the coast then. So we we covered a little bit of uh, of ag, you know, and in, in all around. It's like, but move closer to the water where it seems like the certainly the legislature and the governor have made some pretty significant strides forward from a policy standpoint for sure when it comes to dealing with some of those surficial impacts from urban fertilizer, other kinds of stor- you know stormwater systems from septic tanks. There are a lot of septic tanks in Florida, two point six ish million, and a whole bunch of them are obviously from East Central of Florida all the way down to you know to the tip of Florida on that side. How's it going? How's it going there from your perspective?
1: Yeah, that's been a probably since about two thousand eighteen. I think the shift to really wrestling what's kind of been the elephant in the room all these years with water quality or septic tank systems. Senator Mayfield, Representative Payne, and others have really uh, the Clean Waterways Act, we're a giant step forward. You know, the Governor DeSantis' administration is really focused on providing the funding. Uh the water management districts are implementing a lot of and DEP is implementing the septic to sewer programs that are that are really help helping that. You know, there's a very rigorous stormwater rule that's been proposed by DEP and it will require 85 to 95 percent pre versus post reduction in new development as they put in new stormwater systems. That's going to be, you know, a, a, a significant undertaking by those folks who are choosing to develop their lands. So there's a there's been a, I think, tectonic shift in recent years on focusing on managing this ever-growing population with sensitive environmental resources that can be adversely affected. And you know, I think the Indian River Lagoon was a great example. We had significant data and, and and documentation of septic tank, not septic tanks, but sewer systems failing. And so they've rolled up their sleeves. The legislature passed a special act last year to focus on the Indian River Lagoon. And they're going to provide a lot of opportunities for these municipalities to improve their sewer collection systems and their sewer plant operations. So, so I think it's just a matter of a lot of this takes a lot of money. Uh, we're fortunate to be in a state that is is fairly well off financially with good fiscal management at the leadership and the money they are spending, they're spending it on the sort of the right issues.
0: And give me the scope of your work as it relates to the land council amid, you know, these issues. Obviously, you're working with folks that are, you know, doing that work on the ground when it comes to, you know, dispersed water, et cetera do you touch on these other things as well as you get or is it really simply hey we've got 3 million acres of land you know amongst these members we're dealing with here or is it's got to intermingle right so the
1: land council i i feel honored and blessed to work with them they're they are are they are 19 principal members they do own about 3 million acres to put that in context the entire state is about 33 million acres and <laughs> 12 millions in public ownership then how many millions of acres are developed already so when you start whittling away at what's left there's a they have a big chunk of the open space that's mm-hmm. left and they really want to just be good stewards of their land so a lot of what we do as the land council is is to one I keep them aware of the policies and things that are happening and changing so where they want to weigh in and not weigh in But I think they're willing partners in restoration. They're willing partners in ecosystem management. They're willing partners in water resource management. But at the end of the day, they're private businesses, and they have to be profitable or they get bought out. And so if you want to keep these large tracts of land... Intact, part of what we do at the Land Council is find opportunities to do that. I can tell you in recent years, we've really focused on the uh, Rural and Family Lands Program, the, the Wildlife Corridor, and the opportunities those present, the ability for payment for environmental services. I think what I'm personally excited about is taking those concepts of paying people to pay to store water as a government public benefit to keep harmful discharges from happening. Well, take that same concept if you're in the Wildlife Corridor. Why not pay a landowner to manage critically important lands that might be a critical wildlife connection and so forth? So I think the Wildlife Corridor Group has recognized that and made some recommendations. Maybe we'll see some opportunities in the near future to provide funding opportunities to do things like that. So I'm excited about what lays ahead. Uh, But the Land Council, I think because of the multi-generational nature of who they are, where they are, and they're critical. They're just the patriarchs and the backbone of what I think is of what made this state a great state.
0: How do you, at this point, your 30-year career in government, and now you've had enough time outside to, to see what that's like. Contrast your life, how you approach your the way you think strategically from being on the inside and being on the outside now. So there's obvious
1: differences. You could make more immediate direct effects when you're inside at a leadership position in an agency because you can say, I think this policy needs to be changed or we should recommend this to the governor to change or the legislature. On the outside, it's you, you, have, to, you have a lot more finesse <laughs> to convince the same people that you used to be that they need to advocate for those things. And so that, that adds an extra layer. I will tell you personally, I think I work just as hard. I'm just as satisfied. I love what I do but I think you'll relate to this as a former executive director of a water management district. I can turn my mind off. I used to could never turn my mind <laughs> off. I did, I think 25 years straight of never stopping thinking about work, yeah. waking up in the middle of the night. I've got this deadline. This budget proposal needs to be in this permit needs to be processed and signed. Those things weighed so heavily on me day in and day out to na- Now I'll occasionally get those anxiety things, But it's not a constant weight pushing down on me 24-7 that I did for 30 years. And what that does for me personally is when I have to call up a division director or a bureau chief or an agency head and ask them for something, in the back of my mind, I always have this deep appreciation for what they're doing and what Mm -hmm. they're balancing and the pressures they're under. And, you know, it's another analogy. It's a lot like scuba diving. It's exciting There's a lot going on. You love looking around. But if you stay down under too long, you're going to get hurt. And that's what I found coming up for air more often is much easier now.
0: Yeah. Well well put. All right. Let's move into my standard questions. We'll buzz on through them. I ask everyone, if not the exact questions, pretty similar. What professional accomplishment are you most proud of? And it can be government, outside of government, whatever you want.
1: I think it'd be a surprising one. I, I was a young member of the DNR leadership team, and we were at a critical crossroads. We had gotten a first big slug of money for Preservation 2000. And the, the executive director at the time, Tom Gardner, asked the leadership team, we have this opportunity to buy Topsell Hill, but it's going to use up almost all of our money. Or we can take that money and spread it out and buy smaller parcels all over the state. What should we do? And he goes around the room, and to a man and to a woman, everyone in that room said, spread the money out. They got to me, and I said, buy Topsail Hill. And he said, why? And I could have easily, I was 30 years old, I could have easily said what everybody else said. And I said, Mr. Gardner, Topsail Hill will be a legacy. It's a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to buy it. It It's one of the most spectacular coastal dune systems anywhere in the world. And I trumped all over that property as a kid when St. Joe Paper Company owned it. And if that gets out of, out of reach from ever being acquired, it'll be on all of us. And he said, Ernie's right. Now, I didn't make that happen. It wasn't me. He probably mm-hmm. already had his mind made up. But I am so satisfied that I was able to speak up at the right time in the right place and something wonderful happened. And I still hold that most closest to my
0: heart. It's still the right answer. Yeah. So talking about that part inside government, was there something that was the top sale that you missed? What, something undone?
1: I think that's, that's an easy one for me. I, I think I had convinced myself as a long-time leader in water management issues in South Florida that addressing these harmful discharges was a Mount Everest. You just could never climb it. It was so overwhelming. We were having 5 million acre feet of water in a hurricane year come rushing into that lake and you, the the same events that flood the lake are flooding the Everglades there's nowhere for the water to go and we would have and I'd kind of resolved that oh my gosh I don't know what we do and I don't think we focused on that enough and I think had we spent more time trying to solve this water management issue I would have felt better about when I walked out of government I will say, since I left government and I now live on the banks of the St. Lucie River, I, I, think I'm, I think there are solutions, and we have seen opportunities to dramatically reduce the discharges, and I think that someone else will accomplish what I wasn't able to do.
0: Are you optimistic about the future of the environment and water in Florida?
1: I am. I mean, I think we have the right focus. I mean, the, the, the challenges are daunting. The issues are are, are monumental, I think you know the the commitment seems to be there at the right level, at the right place. We've got leaders in the Florida legislature, leaders in the governor's office leaders in the agency, you know, Secretary Hamilton and Roger Young at FWC. they all are they're all those agency managers, all five water management districts. Uh, I, I, I was at their confirmation hearings this week mm-hmm. and and was touched by not only their passion for what they do, but how they have grown up in this feel just like I did, Mm -hmm. how they have some of them are working in the districts that they grew up in and have that local passion. So I think the gets back to what I said earlier, it'll be the relationships that get this done. And it will be the resources being provided to those who can get it done will will make us optimistic. We have no other choice. Yeah, people are coming, they're coming in thousands per day. And that's not an exaggeration. I think there's twelve hundred people per day we're averaging um I'll tell you one one interesting little statistic mm-hmm. in nineteen twenty Florida had one million people mm-hmm. today there's twenty three million so roughly a hundred years take a hundred years divide it twenty two million by a hundred by three hundred and sixty five days in a year, and we have a sustained net population growth for over a century of five hundred and seventy people per day. Wow. And 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 now it's even escalated, right. uh, and it'll dip back down. But if it sustains that six, seven hundred people per day, just imagine what the population will be like in another fifty years, seventy five years. So if we don't get our water management right, water quality right, resource protection right, we're gonna get get squeezed out. But I think I think the with the wildlife corridor, with the investments in conservation easements, with the innovations in water quality farming practices, septic tank conversions, we, we can get there.
0: What advice would you give to young people who are just entering, thinking of entering the environmental field, more specifically, public service?
1: I think the key to public service is what you and I share, and that's this passion for the issue. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know if I would have stayed in 30 years of, no offense, but if I was, uh, you know, you know, Department of uh, General Services, you know, yes. and, and I'm sure there's people very good in that agency that devoted their whole lives to it and have the same passion that I do. But I think that we're working on an issue that you love, working in a state that you love, working in a place you want to spend your whole life. And, in, in, you know, I think all of those things, I would I would urge them to find a field, whether it's human health or environmental protection or education or justice, you know, you know, justice, criminal justice, whatever, find a a passion and then the job becomes easy.
0: That is also the correct answer that you and I have done the best jobs that there are. Ernie Barnett, thanks so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. This has been a treat. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to Water for Fighting. If you're enjoying the show, please be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you use, and don't forget to leave a five-star rating and review. You can follow the show on LinkedIn and Instagram at flwaterpod, and you can reach me directly at flwaterpod at gmail.com with your comments and suggestions on who and or what you'd want to know more about. Production of this podcast is by Lonely Fox Studios. Thanks to Carl Soren for making the best of what he had to work with and to David Barfield for the amazing graphics and technical assistance. A very special thank you goes out to Bo Spring from the Bo Spring band for giving permission to use his music for this podcast. The song is called doing work for free and you should check out the band live or wherever the best music is sold. Join me next time for another amazing conversation with someone who has helped shape water and environmental policy in the sunshine state. Till then keep your whiskey close and your water closer.